chapter 1, verse 1, through chapter 2, verse 3. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, and there was morning, the second day. And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruits bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, 
have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed and its fruit, you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all of the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. This is the word of the Lord. So, I'm really curious to know what you're thinking right now, <laughs> uh, and why, why I picked Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3 for our passage this morning. Because, uh, you know, usually th- this passage comes up in Presbytery during theology exams and points of contention, uh, different viewpoints. And uh, at Red Mountain right now, this year and next year, I'm, I'm preaching through Genesis and Romans and going back and forth and using both of those books just to, get, to give our congregation a big picture uh, overview of what the Bible is all about and, and what it means. And I think it is, is really hard to overestimate how significant this passage is for understanding who God is, uh, who we are, uh, understanding and thinking about creation and all that God has made. And therefore, people in the church and outside the church have uh, lots of questions that come from looking at this text, uh, some of which we encounter almost every Presbyterian meeting when we get together. And, um, and as important as those questions are, and they really are important, you know, when I was getting ready to, to preach to, to my congregation, I, I, I was met with this very uh, palpable sense, how can I give my people good news from this passage? Because, you know, many of us here have been to seminary, and you know that Jesus in the end of Luke 24 when he says that the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms are written about me, that means that if Jesus is right, there's got to be good news here. And as I was thinking about that and wrestling with that, what can I give my people? I was personally very encouraged by what God taught me and showed me in this text. And I, I want to share that with you today. Uh, I think it particularly has a lot to say to, to those of us in ministry day in and day out. And what I think this text has for us is it helps us to, to lead us to trust in God and to delight in, in His world by showing us how we got here, who we really are, and why we are here. And I just have two points for us. I want to look at the God of creation and then we're going to look at the gifts of creation. So first, let's, let's look at the God of creation. 
And I want you to think about this passage and the point of view from which it is written. You know, the point of view from which this is written, Moses writes this passage from the point of view of celebrating God's greatness, his goodness, his power, his majesty, his eternity. It is very much akin to Psalm 104. It's a passage that celebrates the God that we worship. And all of it begins in verse 1. In the beginning, God. He is distinct from all that He has made. He's not part of His creation. He stands outside of His creation. He is infinite and He is eternal and He is unchangeable. But not only that, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth and uh, my guess is many of you know that, uh, that, that that phrase heavens and the earth is a Hebrew way of describing everything. That it's inclusive of all that has been made. There's nothing that has been made that God did not make. He is in the beginning and He has made all things. And in this passage, he is presented as the primary character. It is all about him. I don't know if you've ever stopped and thought about this, but he is the subject of every verb in this passage, with the exception of, I think, perhaps one, when it says that the earth brought forth fruit. But even in that case, God is in the background. Every single verb God is the actor. And what do we learn about this God? What does he do? He creates. He speaks. He sees. He separates. He names. He makes. He appoints. He blesses. He finishes. He makes holy. And he rests. Another way to think about the God that we know and serve and the God we are presented with here is he's, he's like a master craftsman with absolute power, absolute competence and ability. He is, in this passage, he is not one of many gods, nor is he a God who is vying for ultimacy battling out with other gods. As many of you perhaps know that there are a lot of similarities between the creation account here and other ancient Near Eastern creation stories. But this account, however similar it may be, the, the dissimilarities are striking. And what are we to take from that? This is an alternative creation account. It is an alternative story intended to shape our view of God, ourselves, and the world, unlike any other. And if God is this master craftsman with absolute power and competence, that also means that creation is no accident. Everything in this passage tells us that it is deliberate. It's ordered. It's not chaotic. It's logical and purposeful. We see even in the days of creation, there is a clear sequence 
that God has and His creative work. And not only that, we're told several times that His creation is according to its kind. The plants according to their kinds. The sea creatures according to their kinds. The birds according to their kinds. The animals according to their kinds. There's nothing about this story that in any way suggests God is barely hanging on. Everything in this story suggests and tells us that this God is good. That this God is powerful. That what this God creates is very good. Which brings us to the climax of this creation story at the end when God himself says, after the repetition again and again, he saw it and it was good, he ends with, and it was very good. And then he concludes on the seventh day with God resting from all his work. Now think about that for a moment. What does it mean for God to rest from all that he has made? That is a point that Moses wants you to get very clearly. It's repeated several times in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, that God was finished and he rested. The rest here is not to suggest that God gets tired like you and I do. That's not what he's saying. What he's helping us to see here is that there is a rest that is utterly different than being worn out. It is a rest of deep satisfaction, of deep delight. I wonder how many of you today can say that you have deep, restful, satisfaction and delight in your work. My guess is that most of us, it's anxious toil. Fraught with chaos, fraught with unpredictability, fraught with conflict, disappointment, discouragement. This story tells us that there is a rest. There is a rest of deep satisfaction in work. And God shows us he is the master craftsman who has completed his work, his work week. Now, I want you to think for a moment, so what? Why why does this matter? Why should we pay attention to this God of creation and his work week? I want to make a simple point why this should matter. This work week shows you that God finishes what he starts. God finishes what he starts. And we're told it's very good. It's, it, it's complete. It lacks nothing. And I want you to think for a minute, why is that important? Remember, to whom was this written? Who did Moses write this for? He wrote this for God's people after spending 400 years in slavery in Egypt. 400 years. Now think about this for a minute. If we were to go back 400 years from right now, that's 1618. It's like right in the middle of the Reformation. That's a long time. My guess is the vast majority of us in this room have no idea who our relatives were in 1618. This was written to people whose lives, they have no memory but being enslaved, oppressed, 
in Egypt for 400 years. And they are now rescued from that. They are on their way to the promised land. And what's one of the biggest questions that they face almost immediately after they get out of the promised land is, man, this is terrible. We want to go back. Which is another way of saying, okay, God, you did this great thing, but will we really get to where you're taking us? Will we get there? Can you really do that? You see, all of a sudden, God's creation week that tells us God finishes what he starts becomes incredibly beautiful, incredibly powerful. Because when you're wandering around the desert and you don't know where you are, nothing's familiar, you don't know if you're going to get to your destination, you better believe the God you believe in finishes what he starts. And I wonder about each of us, how about you today? As you sit here and you hear this, and you think about this, are you mid-stride? Do you feel like you're wandering around and you're just not sure you're going to get there? Whatever that destination might be. You're just not sure your marriage is going to survive. You're just not sure your kids are going to understand and embrace Jesus. You're just not sure the things that are broken in our city and in our communities are ever going to change. You're just not sure, despite what you've always believed, that Jesus really is going to come back and make everything right again. And I couldn't help but think of the psalmist in Psalm 121 who takes this very idea that God finishes what he starts and builds it into a prayer. He says... From Psalm 121, from where does my help come? And what's his answer? My help comes from the Lord who what? Who made the heavens and the earth. So that's the God of creation. Let's look at the gifts of creation. Have you ever wondered why God revealed his creative work over the course of, of these seven days? My guess is every one of, almost everyone in here has. <laughs> um, that's a big question. That's a big issue that we all have to wrestle with. And there are, are, are lots of important questions that we have to ask when we come to a text like this. But what I, what I want to focus on today, one of the answers to that, why did God reveal his creative work in a sequence like this? Well, the first is the sequence of the days leads to a beautiful conclusion. It's as if this master craftsman is taking us step by step through his work week, showing us what he can do and how he made these things, how we got here. But what I want you to mostly see is that the sequence of days, it also reveals the climax of God's creation, of his creative work. And it comes in verse 26 to 27. I don't know if you've thought about this, but day six receives the most time in this narrative. The most focus comes in day six. And day six, verse 26, God is holding court with himself. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. 
And then in verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. This is the climax of God's creative work. How do you know that? Well, like I said, day six gets the most attention. But second, the way in which this is written, it slows down. We have verse 27 in which we are told God created man in his own image three times. Why does he include this poetic element here? It's a way to, to get us to reflect, to stop, to ponder, to emphasize what it is God is doing and the climax of what he is doing. So what do we learn? If this is the climax of God's creative work, what do we learn? First of all, we learn who we really are. This is our identity as human beings, created in God's image, unique among all of his creation. And I know, I know there is a, a lot of discussion in the, theological works about what does the image of God really mean? And I think across the board, there is affirmation that it means there's infinite worth and dignity, regardless of where a person is from, or what they've done, or what they believe, every human being is created with worth and dignity. And what's very interesting, in fact, in the ancient Near East, this whole idea of an image of God was was reserved for a monarch, a king. A king was referred to as an image of God a symbol of God's presence on earth. But what's most striking is that in this story, it's not reserved for the elite or for the powerful. Every human being receives this title, image of God. That is an utterly unique claim in the ancient Near East. That the peasant, the poor, all the way to the powerful receive this identity. And not only that, God creates man, male and female, equal but different, both necessary. And in our particular day and time, as we've worked through this here at Red Mountain, I I continue to, to highlight In the midst of all of the discussion around gender and sexuality, one of the things we learn here is that gender and sexuality are created gifts. They're gifts from God. They are good things that he has given, male and female. This is our identity, but not only do we learn about our identity, we also learn why we're here, our calling, our purpose. Look in verse 26 again. Let them have dominion. Verse 28, God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over all that he's made. We're to build community. We're to be fruitful and multiply. We're to fill the earth. We're to subdue it. We're to have dominion. Now, all of this language of subduing and dominion, that's kingly language of ruling, of overseeing, On God's behalf, your calling is as a servant king. 
Now, I think it's safe to say that this language of subduing and dominion is, I think, a little bit difficult for us because there's so few good examples among humanity where dominion is exercised, where humanity subdues people or places under our authority and it turns out well. We just don't see that. But does that mean that this calling should be set aside? No, absolutely not. Because what we need to remember is subduing and having dominion describe God. What does it look like to subdue, to have power, to have dominion? We cannot answer that question without looking at God and how God exercises his power and his dominion. And ultimately that leads you to the cross of Jesus. You see, the power and dominion of God in Christ is the upside down power and dominion. God exercises his power by giving up his power. He demonstrates his dominion by bearing judgment, by being forsaken, by suffering, by losing. Ultimately, God demonstrates his power and his dominion by dying and rising again. What that tells us is to own this calling as image bearers of God means suffering is the path to glory. That power and dominion comes at a cost, at our willingness as his people to bear the cost of loving other people even when it's hurt, it, it hurts and it's hard and you're despised and you're rejected and you're alone. These are the gifts of creation. So what? Why, why do we need to pay attention to this as good news for us? The reason is because identity and purpose, those are two things everyone needs. Everyone needs them. You can't live without an identity. You can't live without a purpose. Why do you think there's so much debate today? Let me just use, the, the, again, the issue of gender and sexuality. Why is there so much debate about that? Among many of the reasons, it's because we all crave an identity and a purpose. And we don't want to be told what our identity and purpose is. And that's just as true for PCA ruling and teaching elders as it is for the most hardened, irreligious secularist. We just might prefer the religious version of that answer. We all crave. It's one of the, the most basic questions for us, though, is how will you answer these two most basic questions? Who am I and why am I here? Eugene Lowry, believe it or not, in a book on preaching, <laughs> writes this. My assumption now is that one's search for self ultimately is fruitless, but it seeks to find that which can only be given by another. In short, we may seek self-identity 
and hope to find ourselves, but the hoped-for result never occurs through our own efforts. We seek ourselves, but are finally found. One's identity is the gift of another's love. Did you hear that? One's identity is the gift of another's love. What this text is telling you, you cannot answer these two most basic questions. Who am I? Why am I here apart from God? He has to answer those questions for you. Now, let me, let me conclude by asking you this. How can you enjoy these gifts and enjoy this God and what he's made? I think the simple answer to that is, is we have to live in light of God's completed work. And, and remember, Genesis 1, it's the backstory to everything that follows. And remember who this is written to. This is written to God's people on the way to the promised land after 400 years of slavery. And these words were written to people who were uncertain about who they were, why they were here, where they're going, and whether or not God would come through. And in that sense, we are no different, though separated by centuries in a very different culture. How many of you here this morning are, are, are sitting there and you're thinking, who am I really? What am I really doing? Why did I ever get into this thing called ministry? How can I handle one more week dealing with this particular person? You're not any different. This passage is written for you. We are no different except for one very important thing. We live on the other side of the cross. And you remember how I said in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, three or four different times, Moses makes it very clear that God finished. He was done. He rested. You live on the other side of the cross. You know what that means? You live on the other side of Jesus Christ, hanging on the cross, crying out, what? It is finished. God finishes what he starts. And he finishes what he starts not only in creation, he finishes what he starts in redemption. I am sure of this. That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion the day of Jesus Christ. This is good news. This is the good news of creation. Paul Tripp writes, We all know that life is sloppy, hard, messy, shameful, and boring. We often deal with things that are out of our control. Good things tend to go bad and bad things tend to seduce us. But the gospel welcomes us to a hopeful realism. We can look life in the face and still be hopeful because of who Christ is and where he is taking us. Everything God has brought into your life has been brought with your destination in view.
God is moving you on even when you think you are stuck. Do you know that God finishes what he starts? And where he's taking you is to a place of deep satisfaction and rest and communion and fellowship with him. There is good news for you. And it's right here at the very beginning of the Bible. And what's really good news about that, this good news is the backdrop to everything that follows. And it takes you to Jesus who will not stop at anything but bringing to completion the good work he's begun. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this passage. Thank you for the good news. Thank you that we don't have to make that up or come up with it, but you've given it to us. And that we can celebrate it and ponder it and take it in and share it with one another and sing about it. Father, I pray that you would be with us as we come to our conclusion of our worship together, that you'd be with us as we fellowship around the table and enjoy a meal together. Father, please encourage us for your glory and for our good. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.